Good morning. We're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in the Pagan World, because that's the world that we live in today. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Always best to, always good to hear the Word of God, but even better to hear it and then be reading it with your own eyes. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous or the unsaved, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word always. Thank you for your word. And the diversity of subject matter that you deal with in your word and the reasons that you do, we marvel, Lord. Acknowledge the fact that you are truly interested in conforming every single part of our thinking, of our living, of our doing, Lord, who and what we are into the image of Christ. And we've come for that, Lord. That's what we turn to your word for, is to be made more like him. And so we pray you open up your word to us and speak to us, Lord. Give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice this morning, we pray. Thank you, Father, that you love us today. Thank you that you are bigger than every problem that we have. Thank you that we have you to rest in. Thank you that you are unfailingly faithful, Lord. And thank you for the place that you have found for us in the shadow of your wing. No matter how far away you may feel at the moment and the greatness of our trials and all that we face in this pilgrimage, Lord, You are so very, very close. We pray, Lord, that today our time together would be a great comfort to those in need, Lord. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The church at Corinth was very, very rapidly destroying 
its Christian reputation before the city of Corinth. Uh, They were a church that was filled with fighting, filled with schisms, and the knowledge of that didn't stay within the church. It never does. It then spread out into the community and was well known by the unsaved world. Their accommodation of sexual immorality in the church had become very, very widely known within the city, and it further damaged their reputation in the eyes of uh, of the world and those that don't know Christ yet. And so often today there's the same trend to accommodate sin um, and in our pride and in our arrogance, even as Christians, disobeying God's word with the idea that somehow it will build a bridge to the lost and that they will uh, respect us for compromising the word in order to uh, build a bridge to them. Um, or, or they, or we just want them to like us. Uh, we want them to feel free to come to church and come into our midst. But it didn't build a bridge at all in that Corinthian culture. It just marred their reputation as a church to an even greater degree. It's a funny thing about unsaved people. I've been one. <laughs> And so have you. But most non-Christians, even if they hate Christ, even if they hate you as a Christian, or if it's lesser so, they dislike Christ, and they dislike Christianity, they don't believe in the Bible, they don't like the Bible, they don't want to have anything spoken to them from the Bible, they don't like God's definitions of good and bad and right and wrong. As deeply ingrained as that might be in a person, they still expect Christians to be different. And they still expect Christians to live by the book, even if it's a book that they themselves have rejected. People do not respect us because we compromise God's word in an attempt to build a bridge to them. They know what a Christian should be. They don't want to be a Christian, but they expect those that call themselves to be Christians to live a different kind of life. And now the Apostle Paul moves on to the next problem within the church at Corinth that was doing considerable damage to their reputation within the community. And that was their lawsuits that they were uh, engaging in against one another as members of the church. And the problem is uh, laid out for us in verse 1. The Christians at Corinth were suing one another, taking each other to court before the unsaved judges there in Corinth in order to attempt to uh, resolve their problems between one another. Rather than resolving their problems quietly and privately between one another as Christians or with the help of Christian leaders within the church, 
they then turn to the world to fix these problems. And problems do occur between Christians, and Christians sin against other Christians, and problems arise because of that. And so problems and conflicts do occur between Christians, and uh, Christians do things to one another that they shouldn't, and, and Christians then will oftentimes need help in resolving their problems, help in getting justice in the situation. But Paul contends here that all of that can and should occur within the privacy of the church family, with godly leaders within the church addressing the situation in the light of the Scriptures. What does the Bible say? Taking the issue to prayer, depending upon the Holy Spirit, to then give them the mind of Christ and the revelation that they need from the Holy Spirit in order to properly uh, rule or to address that particular problem. And thankfully, in the last uh, few years, it's only been fairly recently, but the last number of years, um, there is more and more and more Christians uh, have stepped forward where there is now Christian arbitration. There are uh, Christians who will take this position, leaders, people who are gifted in this particular area, where people, two Christians, can come together with a significant problem, submit to arbitration, seek reconciliation, but it's handled among Christians and it's not taken to a court uh, of law. And, and that's uh, because our dirty linen doesn't look that attractive to the rest of the world and it shouldn't be paraded before the rest of the world. There are problems. They do need to be solved. We're not in heaven yet. We're not perfect yet. But how we handle our problems are, is supposed to be different than the way that the world handles them. We want to be very careful in looking at this passage to note that what Paul is addressing here are lawsuits being filed by one Christian against another Christian. So this does not mean that Christians cannot use uh, the legal system of the government uh, in the nation in which we live. The Apostle Paul repeatedly exercised his legal rights as a Roman citizen to defend himself and the cause of Christianity against unjust persecution brought against him both by individuals and by government officials. Civil government, including the whole legal system, government is an institution of God that is given by God in order that a nation or a city or a world doesn't just go into chaos. Things are to be done decently and in order. And so laws are put into place, systems are put into place to enforce those laws, and there's nothing wrong with Christians using that system in order to exercise our rights as citizens. Again, what's being condemned here are lawsuits being filed by Christians against other Christians. Now, one of the things that really gets my attention concerning this uh, eight verses that we've read here today is that when I read Paul's language here, uh, clearly what they're doing is a great affront to him. It pains him. 
As strong as his language was in the earlier chapter of speaking to this situation of sexual immorality, I mean an unspeakable situation of sexual immorality that they were accommodating within the church, his language was very, very strong. But it almost pales in comparison to the strength of the language that he uses here in this particular uh, chapter in addressing this particular problem. What they're doing to one another is an outrage to Paul. And it really has struck a very, very deep nerve with him. And you notice the language in verse 1. He says to them, dare any of you. I don't know how many of you, you don't need to shout out, but how many of you have said to another person uh, in life when they've done you a wrong or they're doing wrong and you say, how dare you do that to me? How dare you say that to me? By the time those words come out of a person's mouth, I mean, what, is, what has happened to them has... Usually a person will speak something like that, and they're almost emotionally trembling. They've been pushed a long ways. What, it, what has occurred against them and what they're seeing is so appalling to them that it, it produces this very, very deep reaction. And I would venture to guess that most of us have never said that to another person, no matter how greatly we've been uh, poorly we've been treated, maybe by someone else. Sometimes we'll just stuff it and we'll just go on about our business and move on. But by the time you say something like that to a person, right in their face and right eye to eye, and you say, how dare you do that, you realize, okay, this person has been pushed very, very far, and this is something that is, again, appalling uh, to this person. And Paul felt that with what they were doing to each other. And then he says to them in verse 5, I say this to your shame. In other words, I'm saying what I'm saying to you in these verses in order to shame you, in order to provoke within this very carnal, callous group of Christians some sense of shame related to their behavior. Of course, today in the culture that we live in, you can't make people feel ashamed about anything. They can be an axe murderer. You can't even, you can't look at a serial killer and make him feel ashamed about what he's doing. He's got some kind of constitutional right that protects him from you making him feel ashamed of his activity. Well, I use hyperbole related to it. But as people feel like the world's worst thing is to make a person feel shame over their actions or over their words. But we should feel shame when we do something that we should be ashamed of, or we say something that we should be ashamed of. Shame is a good thing because it wakes us up to what it is that, uh, the seriousness of what it is that we're doing. Or shame is a good thing because we can realize that there's shame on that path, and so I'm not going to walk down that path myself because I don't want to experience that shame. But he shames them here, and he feels like and believes that he's doing a good thing because they are feeling no shame over something they should be deeply ashamed of. And then he says, tells them in verse 7, he calls it an utter failure. And 
he could hardly use stronger language to express his feelings on this particular matter. And I think it's good for us to just stop and ask ourselves concerning this particular issue of Christians suing other Christians before unbelievers, whether that Christians doing that produces the same kind of response that Paul had to hearing that news, or do we hear about another Christian suing another Christian and we say, oh, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Or, oh, well, what can I do about it? What's the big deal about that? What's for lunch? And I'd venture to guess that most Christians in the United States hear that news about one Christian suing another, and it hardly breaks their heart, and it certainly doesn't raise them up to a place of interjecting themselves in the way that Paul does here. We just go on about our business. And I would say not in the way of making us be self-condemned or anything like that, but to just stop and ask ourselves, because we live in a Corinthian culture ourselves. The United States is Corinth, not just the city, the nation is. And to just stop and ask ourselves is the fact that this kind of activity does not appall us. Does it mean that something very, very significant is maybe missing from our lives as Christians that was very, very powerfully and actively present in the Apostle Paul's life. We'll talk more about that in just a moment or two. What they're doing in terms of their actions here was born out of ignorance on their part. And so Paul's going to educate them about an ignorance in their Christian life that would allow them to that that allowed them to feel that they could do this to the name of the Lord and the reputation of the Lord and do this to other Christians, and so he educates them concerning their ignorance in verses two through six, and he does it with a series of "Do you not know?" statements. Twice that phrase is used in verses one through eight: "Do you not know? Do you not know?" And six times it's used in the chapter as a whole. And again, it's intentional on Paul's part. Paul is, he is wanting to kind of, in a sanctified way, poke them in the eye. He's wanting to poke their pride and, and humble them a little bit. Corinth is a Greek city, Greek culture. Um, they thought they were very knowledgeable, very intellectual, uh, very well educated, all of these kind of things. And they prided themselves in it. And Paul, when he comes in and says, do you not know twice to them, that would have been an affront to their pride. And he does it purposely. But here you have a church that is absolutely cannibalizing itself. They are destroying themselves and their witness within a community. It is one disastrous spiritual decision after Another, and yet they're mightily proud of their great capacity for what they know, not what they live, but what they know, their intellects, their ability to debate, their appreciation for orators and speakers and all of this kind of thing. And so when Paul says, do you not know, he's, he's uh, 
He's getting their attention. It would have been an insult to them. But somebody needed to get their attention. Jesus, you remember when he spoke, oftentimes with the religious leaders, they would come and try and trap him related to some kind of question. And Jesus would sometimes answer and say, "Um, Have you not read where it is written? And he quotes something from the Law and the Prophets from the Old Testament. He would say it to the Jewish religious leaders who considered themselves to be the experts in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets. And so when he would say that, Have you not read? Well, they'd read the Old Testament a million times if they were scribes or Pharisees or if they were Sadducees. And and uh, so it was that would have been an insult to them, but he would have had their attention. And then he would bring to light some passage from the Old Testament that would blow their whole argument to smithereens because they'd built it all upon this thing over here and they failed the balances with what God said over here. And so Paul just simply takes on the device of his Savior in dealing with them. He says, do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? That may be news to some of us here, even this morning. We're going to judge the world. And one day we're going to judge the world in the sense that the Bible teaches that one day Jesus is going to return to this earth at his second coming. And when he steps upon that Mount of Olives by way of the Valley of uh, Megiddo to uh, enter into Jerusalem, he will then establish what is known as the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And you and I are going to, as Christians, going to rule and reign with him. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem. So whatever he uh, declares is to be done, then we, we will, uh, our part of what we will do will be to make sure that that happens in the part of the world that we uh, have oversight of under his authority to make sure that his wishes are adhered to and his righteous wisdom is adhered to during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And where will you and I reign? We don't know, but it, the Bible seems to indicate that Each of us will reign somewhere on the earth related to how faithful we've been to our service to him in this life. Jesus spoke and he said, well done in one of the parables that he gave to a man who had been faithful in his service to God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful over a few things. I make you a ruler over ten cities. And so forth goes the parable. So maybe the Apostle Paul is going to rule and reign with Christ from Bethlehem, you know, just a stone's throw away from Jerusalem where Jesus is. And then depending upon our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness, uh, you and I might rule and reign in Stockton uh, or uh, Denaire or somewhere, some other bankrupt uh, city. So I shouldn't have said that, and I repent. Of that. But you get the idea of the, of the fact that we're going to rule and ra- have a little fun with it. But in all seriousness, we will rule and reign with him somewhere upon this earth as his people. And the idea that Paul is making is that if we're going to judge the world one day, shouldn't we be able to settle our own problems together as Christians without having to resort to having the unsaved world settle our problems for us. 
Any problem that comes up among Christians, Paul is saying, is infinitesimal in comparison to what we will be involved in in the future. He said in verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? And this refers to fallen angels. And one day, uh, we know from Jude, chap- uh, Jude verse 6, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 9, that the fallen angels are going to be judged one day and that Jesus will be the judge. And it is in, our se- it is in the sense of our union and our identification as Christians with Christ that we will be judging angels when he does so. And so Paul is saying to the church at Corinth and to us, the world should be coming to us to solve their problems. We should never have to go to the world to solve our problems between one another. It ought to be the other way around. And in the light of these things... It seemed incredible to Paul that these Christians could not resolve their problems by finding a Christian capable of righteously judging the situation rather than taking these things before unbelieving judges in human courts. And what this going to court against other Christians communicates to the unsaved world And it does communicate something to the unsaved world. When you have two Christians in a court of law and you have a judge, you have a bailiff, you have a prosecuting attorney, you have a defense attorney, you have other officials in that courtroom, you have spectators in that courtroom, the vast majority of which are unsaved. And when a Christians take their problem into that environment... It communicates to the unsaved world that we as Christians are really no different than anyone else in the world when push comes to shove. When it comes down to money and power and possessions and reputation, those people tear one another apart as good as you'll ever see between any two non-Christians. And that's the conclusion that they're free to come to. Because that's what they see. Yes, those Christians, they have their Bible. They talk a good talk. They go to church on Sunday, all of that kind of stuff. I'll tell you, you mess with their money, they'll put up a fight that would put an unsafe person to shame. I've seen it in my courtroom over and over again, the judge may say. Or communicates to the unsafe world, that the Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are altogether meaningless and powerless in guiding us to solve our own problems between one another. And the judges and the court personnel then get to witness Christians fighting publicly. And so often those battles that occur within a courtroom, they can become very personal and very selfish and very petty and very, very ugly. And then all of those people think to themselves that if our faith and our God is useless to solve our problems and disputes, which that then makes them feel very free to reject Christ and to reject Christianity on the basis of the evidence that they see every day. 
between Christians. And all of this would be avoided, Paul said, if the parties would submit to a spiritual leader or leaders in the church who would be able to then judge the case based upon the Scriptures, again, through prayer and through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, the Jews, the Jews did not, they did not sue one another. Under the Old Covenant, an inferior covenant, inferior blessings. They dreamed of having the Holy Spirit like you and I have the Holy Spirit. They dreamed of having a revelation of God like we have. They dreamed of a day when every single child of God would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and baptized with the Holy Spirit and experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This was a selective experience under the Old Covenant. And yet even under the Old Covenant, they solved their problems amongst themselves. The children of Israel were being led by Moses. Here you got a congregation of somewhere between two and three million adults, and men, women, and children. And Moses would get up in the morning. There's a lot of problems that can occur between God's people. So he'd set up a little tent or whatever, and they would bring their problems. He would then look at those problems in the light of the law of Moses, make a decision on that, and then that was, that was binding. They, uh, they held to that. Jethro came, his father-in-law came to Moses and said, what you're doing isn't right. It isn't that what you're doing is wrong, but the format isn't right. You're going to kill yourself and you're going to kill these people. You, one man can't judge a congregation and the problems that arise and the interpersonal problems and that kind of thing, a congregation of two to three million people. You need to find people that are like you. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They have a fear of God. They know the Scriptures. They have a great respect for God and love for people. And make them, put them over hundreds and put them over fifties. And Moses, let these smaller issues be dealt with by these men, and then only the larger problems would kind of go up through the ranks and be brought before you. And so that would be all that you would be dealing with, not all of these smaller problems. But within the children of Israel, everything was dealt with within the family. They never went over to the Moabites for justice or the Canaanites or the Philistines. They handled that within the family because they, of the authority that they gave to the Word of God and a concern for God's reputation before the lost world. And the point that Paul's making here is that we are, as Christians, fully qualified to fix our own disputes. Now, his instruction to them is in verses 7 and 8, and he says in verse 7, Why do you not rather accept the wrong than take the matter before unbelievers? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? Verse 7. Verse 8, he said, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and do these things to your brethren. And then again in verse 7, he said, it's an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. And that word utter failure, literally it means a complete defeat. And he's speaking to those that have taken other Christians to court and they've won their case. 
And he says, in essence to them, even though you won the court case against another Christian, it was really a complete defeat, but you're too carnal to understand it because what is truly valuable in this world and what is only valuable in this world has been lost in that courtroom. What? Because the name and the reputation of the Lord Jesus was dragged through the mud as a result. And Paul is saying that it's better to lose your money or your possessions than to cause the name of the Lord Jesus and His reputation to be soiled in the mind of even a single non-Christian. An application or two related to the passage. Why was all of this such an affront to the Apostle Paul? Did Paul didn't say, don't go before those dirty pagan heathen judges because you won't get justice from them. That's not his concern. You can get justice, oftentimes, from an unsaved judge. All of this was an affront to Paul for two reasons, and each of the two reasons are listed in verse 6. First of all, because all of this was wrong because of the terrible damage that it did to the local church body. You notice he says, brother goes to law against brother, and he uses family terms deliberately. He uses over and over again, brother, 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 one another. It's all family terms that he's using. I don't know how many of you have ever been a part of a family where in a physical family where one member of the family has sued another member of the family. That tears a family right down the middle. That forces people to take sides in that situation, and that family will never be the same after that suit as it was before the suit. It introduces a terrible dynamic into a family. And what Paul is saying is what happens obviously within a physical family also occurs within a church family. The, the same tear occurs within that local church. And imagine the damage that all of these suits, they're suing one another right and left. And it was not one time, but it was a prevalent thing going on within the church. Imagine that dynamic going on in a church, what, it, what the damage that it must have done to fellowship within that church, worship, love, the family, sense of family within that church. You come into church and four rows over is the guy that's suing me. You're going to be able to worship the Lord in that environment? Probably not. What happens today is one person leaves the one church and they go to another church in the community. And in a city like Modesto that's as big as it is, you've got another 149 churches you can go to. But at the time of Corinth, there was one church in Corinth, one church. There wasn't another church to go to. So they're all in the same place. And you come in... And here is a guy that is suing me, and he's trying to take everything I own and food from the mouth of my children. Are you going to be able to concentrate on the Lord in that environment? You won't. You won't. The whole thing is all divided in your mind. 
and the power of these things to where we come into a church environment. God is so big. God is so great. He's so amazing. And yet this carnality can end up spoiling the whole service for large groups of people. And then you multiply that times however many times this was going on in Corinth and all of the people taking sides and all of these lawsuits that are going on, all of the bitterness that would occur. And Paul contends that maintaining the family atmosphere within a local church, that alone is worth not suing a brother but seeking godly leadership to mediate a biblical solution to the problem. And then the second problem that this creates within a local church, or the second problem that it creates not just in the local church, and this is the worst, even worse problem, is the damage that all of this does to the reputation of Jesus in the hearts and in the minds of non-Christians who are exposed to all of that. So he says that before unbelievers. And I think that that's what... That's what got the Apostle Paul the most. And all of this, he says, was an utter failure. And why was it an utter failure even when they win the court case? It was an utter failure because their Christian witness had been marred before the unsaved world and because Jesus' reputation had been soiled in the eyes of the Lord. And that was the real damage that was being done in all of this activity. What good is it if I win a lawsuit for a million dollars, if in doing so I have to hurt the reputation of God in the eyes of the unsaved world? Is God's reputation worth more than a million dollars? Is God's reputation before an unsaved person worth more than a million dollars. Jesus said concerning the value of a soul, he said, spoke of the fact, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Only Jesus knows the value of a human soul. We don't even know the value of a human soul until we give our life to the Lord. Eternity is a long time. A million dollars is nothing to God. It's nothing for him to recompense it to someone who loses it. In heaven, we're told that the streets are paved with gold. It's not about money, but the reputation of God. And for the reputation of God to be soiled or to be destroyed in the eyes of an unsaved person, it's not worth anything that's won or lost in that courtroom. That's what Paul is saying. Because Paul had an understanding, his Lord's understanding, of the value of a soul. Corinth knew nothing about it. They were too carnal. It was all about them. Well, if God can save me, He can save them. It doesn't matter. The money's in the bank. And they didn't understand or care about the value of a soul or the importance of God's reputation to a world that was watching them. And it's not just lawsuits. It's how we drive. It's how we live. It's how we conduct our businesses. It's all across the board. The principle's the same. Clearly for the Apostle Paul, no material thing, nothing in this world was more important or more valuable to him than his witness for Christ. 
to properly represent the Lord. And to him, it would have been better to lose everything than to hurt Jesus' reputation in this world. And the saints in Corinth, they fail to realize how much people really do come to conclusions about God based upon what they see out of our lives. They thought they could just live their life any old selfish, sinful way, and it had no reflection upon the Lord. And Paul writes to them in his second letter to the Corinthians, and he reminds them that they are ambassadors for Christ, that we represent a king and a kingdom who is far greater than ourselves, and that everything about our lives needs to be subservient to properly representing that king and that kingdom. He also spoke to them in Second Corinthians about the fact that they were living epistles known and read of all men. We mentioned it before, but the fact of the matter is related to each of us as Christians. We are the only Bible that most people will read before they become a Christian. They will assume that what they are seeing in us is the Christian life. And what they see in us individually as Christians then reflects upon the Lord himself. It reflects upon the kingdom of God. It is a reflection upon every other Christian because they will take what they see there and they will impose it upon every other Christian that, that they meet or that they, uh, that they know. And the lives of these Christians in Corinth not only were they not making the life of Christ attractive to an unsaved world, but they were putting a stumbling block through this behavior between people ever giving a serious consideration to the Lord, to his truth, to salvation, coming to know him. And all of this then raises the question, personal question, and that is how important is God's reputation before this lost world to each of us. And Paul says it should mean more to us than our own reputation. It should mean more to us than money or material things. It should mean more to us and be more important to us than proving myself to be right in a way that then misrepresents him in doing so. As Christians, one day we're going to be in heaven and we're going to see Jesus face to face. And within five seconds of being in that heavenly scene, we will be so glad that we elevated his name and his reputation above all of the things in our life. And these Christians were completely oblivious to the damage that they were doing to God's reputation in the city of Corinth. We have to be careful as Christians that we are not oblivious to any damage that our lives are doing to Jesus' reputation in the city that he's called us to witness for him in. 
It is such a privilege to represent the Lord in this world. God's reputation in this world is bound up in me, and it's bound up in you as a Christian. I can't believe that God makes himself so vulnerable, but he does it. His reputation is bound up in the conduct of every single Christian in the world, bound up in us. And that's a tremendous privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility. And in that sense of privilege to be able to wake up in the morning, hit that front door and head out into the cold, cruel world or whatever it might be and head out and be able to say, I'm not just heading out into this world as Damien Jack Kyle. I am going out into this world as an ambassador for Christ. I represent him. I represent another kingdom. The meaning... The substance, the purpose that that gives to a human life, the ennobling of a human life that occurs when a person sees themselves that way and then lives in that kind of, of, of a way. It is, and no sin or act of selfishness is ever worth marring his reputation before the world. And so God help us. To never drag Jesus' name or the name of Christianity through the mud, through some act of selfishness or sin. This situation that's described here or anything. Paul said, dare you? He said, I say this to your shame. He said, it is already an utter failure. And you think about the zeal behind those statements a zeal for the Lord's name and his reputation. It needs to mark our lives as well for the sake of the family atmosphere of a local church like Calvary Chapel of Modesto. I need a peaceful place to worship every week. I pastor at this church, but I'm a member of the congregation. And I value the fact that I'm able to walk in here on any given Sunday or throughout the week and to have this body be the body that it is that allows me to, without distraction, put my focus solely upon the Lord and to be able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we don't want to wait till we lose that kind of an atmosphere in a church or gets thrown away one church after another church after another church after another church before we realize how precious it is and how much more meaningful it is going to be to us as the world becomes more and more what it is going to become before Jesus returns. We need a church family and we need a family environment in a church and whatever is required to protect that and to nurture that is worth it and then to do so for the sake of the lost world that's watching our lives and the hope of seeing something different 
about us because we're Christians. Again, the Apostle Paul, he has a great concern for the reputation of the Lord. That is supreme. But right below it is a tremendous concern for the souls of men and women that don't know the Lord yet. And he had, again, his Savior's concern for souls and that nothing would be done that could in any way stumble them in coming to know Christ themselves. You say, where does all that come from? You know, Paul was a man where before he became a Christian, he'd have not only sued you, but he'd have torn your head off in doing so. Alice Cooper, what did he do, bite the heads off birds? You wouldn't want to meet Paul in a court of law as a Pharisee. He'd tear you to shreds and not even blink. And yet this is the man that he became. Why? Because he was a new man. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That changed everything for him. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you say, I'm not a a Christian yet because I've seen too many Christians do unchristian things. Well, let's think about that just for a moment. I won't doubt the truthfulness of that. Every Christian is far from perfect this side of heaven. But I would venture to guess that the average person who says, I'm not a Christian today because of what I saw one or two Christians do in my formative years or later on in life, I would venture to guess that you had five other Christians for every one of them that walked the talk and walk, that talked the talk and walked the walk before you, but you never glommed on to them. You saw the real thing. You got to see the real thing. But if we all want an excuse, we can find an excuse. And that's why Jesus declared concerning himself when he called on people to put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins and for salvation. He didn't bring you and I into that equation at all. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, he said, I am the singular, the faithful and true witness No Christian is. He alone is. And you need to come to your conclusions concerning Christ and concerning Christianity based solely upon Him. And when you look at Him, you will be like everyone said in one way or another while He was living on the earth 2,000 years ago, I find no fault in Him. Never allow the failure of any other Christian, me or someone else, to keep you or to consider that a legitimate excuse to keep you from putting your faith in Christ because it isn't. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to answer your questions questions, and then pray for you to receive the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, 
to be made a new creation by the Holy Spirit and to begin a personal relationship with God, and it's all there for the asking and receiving. You may not have two quarters to rub together when you came into this room today, and you can leave the richest man or woman in the whole wide world on the basis of what God will give you. And it's just a prayer and a request away because he loves you and he wants to save you. Take advantage of the opportunity today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, you know better than anyone that everything in this passage of Scripture flies in the face of the culture that we live in. And the conforming pressure of that culture upon us, even as Christians. And Lord, as I have ministered the word here today, you have had the most interesting seat in the house and that you've not only listened to my attempts to teach your word, But, Lord, you have experienced the response of every single Christian in this room to your word because you live inside of us. And, Lord, we pray that to whatever degree we have been conformed by this world, to elevate our reputation, our money, our material things above your reputation and the things that are really important and eternal in this life, Christian fellowship, the salvation of the lost, where that is upside down, Lord, in any of our hearts, We pray for a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit, a fresh being made over, Lord, by your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. And it will take a miracle, Lord, but you can do that miracle in our lives. We ask that you would protect us from ever becoming a part of the Church of Corinth, And we pray and we depend upon you, Lord, in our Christian lives and as a church from ever elevating anything above your name and your reputation or ever feel free to mar your name or spoil your reputation before a world that is watching us. Help us, Lord. Conform us into the image of your Son and of your kingdom. 
Pull us out of the conforming process of this world, Lord. Thank you for passages like this that confront us with our selfishness and our carnality, confront us with what is fashioning and conforming us, Lord, but does so to lead us into freedom, Lord. Lead us into freedom, into the authentic Christian life, the life like the Apostle Paul lived, the life like Jesus lived, with those priorities, Lord, the real things being valued, the things that are truly valuable. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen.